welcome, welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast presented to you from the Western Cape Pod Bunker located here in the heart of Cape Town, South Africa. This pod is presented to provide a platform and a voice for built environment professionals and interest groups who are working towards transforming the places and spaces here in South Africa. It is dedicated to those individuals and community groups that are supporting both the formal and informal processes that are shaping our cities and our spaces. How the public sector is spending its money, how it's allocating its budgets, uh, is increasingly being scrutinized by both the public and private sectors alike. How that money is being prioritized to fund both projects and programs is an annual process. And for every major infrastructure project that makes the news, think of, for example, the freeway uh, upgrading programs or the 2010 infrastructure projects. Uh, There are thousands of other projects that are vying for resources for the people, the money and the land required to deliver on the different projects within the different spheres of government. Limited funds, flatlined economy, austerity, these are all the words and catchphrases that we are hearing in South Africa right now. Increasingly, there's a need to do more with less and demonstrate a tangible results or tangible impacts in terms of the money that is spent within our communities. Various processes, regulations demand uh, the alignment of plans and budgeting between the different spheres, between national, between provincial, local government or the municipalities. Things like the Integrated Development Plan or the IDP, the Municipal Spatial Development Frameworks and more recently for the metros, the Built Environment Performance Plan are some of the plans and processes that are driving and shaping how municipalities deal with the complexities and the challenges of service delivery and providing the foundations for not only sustainable financial uh, governance within these cities but also the whole question of local economic development and maintaining the asset base of the different infrastructure pieces that pull together to form the basis of our towns and cities. To achieve this and to address the complexity and the variables impacting on decision making requires institutional coordination, it requires interdisciplinary approaches and intergovernmental coordination. It means a collective effort within the limited funds at hand to achieve the transformation of our landscapes, maximize service delivery and maintain the economic foundations of the cities and the country as a whole. In today's Talking Transformation podcast episode, we talk to James Skippers and Bernard van Billion, two of the partners with Novus 3, who together with their partner Jaco de Vries, have a wealth of experience in developing both the methods and the tools to support decision-making, to assist the technical and political prioritization processes, and to demonstrate the spatial and socio-economic impacts of public spending. The expertise and insights are derived from almost two decades of service and understanding and developing approaches to support these challenges. Their insights and approaches have served a diversity of clients, including some of the development finance institutions, or DFIs, including the World Bank, a number of our metropolitan authorities, some of the national departments and other state-owned entities. The reflections in this interview offer the listener a unique and comprehensive perspective on the scale and the complexity of the challenges and the means available to start addressing these issues. We hope you enjoy the episode. So it's a Wednesday afternoon. I'm up here in Hatfield, Pretoria with Bernard van Bouillon and James Skierpers from Novus 3. Bernard, James, thank you so much for making time available this afternoon. Hi, Pete. Welcome here. Good to see you here. Good afternoon, Pete. Uh, <laughs> nice to see you and uh, what a privilege to be part of your podcast. 
No, thanks very much, guys, and many thanks for making the time and uh, effort to uh, chat to us today about some of the approaches that have been taken in recent years around the whole question of capital alignment, of taking multi-billion rand budgets across across the country through municipalities, through national or provincial departments, trying to make sense of that, both in space as well as trying to understand the impact of what is this money going to deliver on. And I think the two of you have been instrumental around the whole question of uh, capital investment and management systems. Um, so today we're going to talk about that. And I suppose the opening question to, to you both is why is the alignment of processes and these budgeting processes such an important part of the governance within the public sector? Well, Pete, to us, uh, well, our view is that local government is similar. It's very similar to large multidisciplinary business in the private sector. So in a private business, capital is directed towards achieving the vision, the mission and the objectives of the business. At local government, issues like vision vision and mission and objectives are more complex or multi-dimensional. The expectation from our local governments is to make a visible and lasting change to the lives of people living in our cities and towns. So politically, in the world of coalition politics, service delivery, protest, accountability and evidence are elements that are sought, but those things are seldom provided adequately. So a very limited and heavily contested resource at local government is capital. Okay? The majority of municipalities struggle to find their capital needs in a way that redresses the omissions and shortcomings from the past, maintaining existing assets and resources, while also investing in the future to create, a, to create new opportunities and dignity and the economic growth that goes with it. So to complicate things even further, there are a whole host of legislation contained in things like the MFMA, SPLUMA, um, and I'm sure you're going to explain later what those th- uh, acronyms stand for. Sure. That needs to be complied with when you do when you do spending of public capital at local government level. So you need to comply with all of those things on top of all the complications. So it's safe to say the process is complex. Uh, it's however important, and if you manage to do it right, a difference is made. It's like a car that's stuck in the mud, right? Mm. Um, at first you just see the wheels spin, but slowly but surely traction is gained and progress is made. So it's possible, in my view, to get out of this mud still within our lifetime. James, anything you would like to add? Yeah, maybe just on the legislative side of things and in the planning framework. It's really been, if you if you go back into the history of planning legislation, it's been the legislative intent from the beginning that budgeting and planning processes be aligned Local Government Transition Act made statements to the effect of, it was the first document to make statements around integrated development planning. Mm-hmm. And there they make a point about promoting a rational and developmentally orientated budget. So that really starts moving towards the concept of spatial targeting and spatial transformation, but not explicitly stating it. Right. So they, it's being implied. Municipal Systems Act, bringing in the IDP, starts making sounds around aligning resources, that being budget and organizational resources of the municipality, in terms of plan implementation. So that already starts talking about aligning budgeting and implementation plan. Municipal Finance Act, start putting long-term financial planning behind it. So that comes into the mix. And then ultimately, having jumped quite far into the planning legislation in Spluma, bringing in the, the concept where it's now a requirement for your SDF to contain a capital expenditure framework which is essentially a spatially targeted, spatially depicted budget. So that, from a planning legislation perspective, has been on the cards virtually from the get-go. From a planner's perspective, there are many planning and policy instruments that we have to our disposal to effect change in the sort of urban environment and in the built environment value chain. 
But in my mind, the biggest planning and sorry, the biggest policy instrument that we have to our disposal is the budget, because by wielding the budget in a spatially targeted and spatially transformative way, it's the biggest impact that you can have in the urban in the urban environment. I mean, land use policies and uh, land use management frameworks, etc., are also contributing, but they have a much longer like they take much longer to to sort of effect that change. Where the budget is a real financial impact that you have in the urban environment. So to perhaps su- summarize what you're saying is it, this the whole question comes down to what money is available, what is the intent, what's the impact and where within space is the investment uh, targeted. Exactly. All of that within a plethora of rules that you have to comply with and that's really where it gets complicated. Well, let's, let's talk about that uh, yeah. nature of complexity, Bernard. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously, uh, you've already alluded to some of the regulatory aspects, mm. but I'm guessing there are other things to come in, come, come into play to make what would seem an easy ask, yeah. uh, highly complex. Very. So, yeah, you've got one bag of money. You've got one capital budget. That capital budget must redress the past, it must maintain the present, and it must enable the future. So how do you balance that? Mm. Okay, and furthermore... Capital appears to be a financial thing. The word capital invokes uh, it's a financial thing. I need a spreadsheet. It's, however, far more than that. It's a spatial thing. It's an economic thing. It's an environmental thing. It's an engineering thing. Once more, how do you balance all of that? It's not just a financial thing. Having said all of this, who do you put in charge to landing this big airship when you talk about capital? Taking into account all of those complexities, it's clear that you cannot simply steer the vessel from a financial perspective. Sure. You have to harness a range of skills and considerations, and these skills tend to operate in a stovepipe, usually in a municipal environment. Those variety of skills that I mentioned, they usually operate on their own. It takes strong and very willful leadership to break this paradigm. This is the space we have been working on changing over the past 20 years. I'm assuming when you say uh, leadership, you're talking there both in a political as well as an administrative uh, sense. Very much so. Both of those spheres have to be involved. And, and just so that we can understand, I mean, for, for listeners who are perhaps not as familiar with, you know, when we talk about budgets, so what's the sort of quantum that we're talking about here for, say, a, a metro like, for example, city of Johannesburg or city of Tswani? What's the, what's the ballpark figure there, James? So there is a range in the metros, Pete, from a project complexity perspective or the size of the nu- the number of projects in the typical consideration set. It could range anything from 1,500 projects on an annual basis to three and a half, four thousand projects. Uh, the financial quantum could range sort of from two billion to up at the ten up at uh, sort of ten billion, twelve billion, depending on economic circumstances. Obviously, sure. currently being quite a constrained economy. Many sure. of those budgets have been cut back. We've been up to around the 12 billion figure for some of the big metros. And I mean, that would be excluding things like an intervention like a 2010 that comes along and all of a sudden we need to build hundreds of billions rands worth of uh, stadia, bus rapid transit systems and the like. Absolutely. And I think also it's that's the capital figure. It's not the OPEX figure. Um, so that balloons it even more. It also, we need to start thinking about our capital budgets in our jurisdictions, not as, as the local government's portion only. We need to think of, think of those budgets in the term, if we take the terminology from the capital expenditure framework, they call it the CIF, the capital investment framework. It's the portion that you're responsible for as a local municipality in your jurisdiction, but as well the provincial portion mm. and the national mm. and SOE portion in your jurisdiction. So it's a 
It's an intergovernmental budget. And when you start putting those numbers together, then we are really talking big money and large numbers of projects that have to be sifted through in a prioritization framework to consider what's important and what do we spatially target where and why. I guess, I guess tools and processes like the Built Environment Performance Plan and so forth, which is looking at that intergovernmental space of, as you say, not just the municipality, but the province, state-owned entity, that, that's one of the platforms that's been put into this space, not so? Absolutely. So from a, from a metro perspective, the BEP, the Built Environment Performance Plan, plays a, a very strong and key role there. But even at intermediary city level or intermediate city level, the capital expenditure framework also has an intergovernmental component in it. So it's already starting to, to sort of pull over into the smaller municipalities, this planning logic about not only looking at your own jurisdiction, but looking at other spheres of government and how they play in your jurisdiction. It, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the themes that we're already touching on is this idea of then not just a, a one-dimensional, but interdisciplinary, intergovernmental yeah. It's all of these things. I mean, for the benefit of the listeners, I mean, your background, Bernard. Mm. I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm a civil engineer. And my entire career, I've spent on the planning side of engineering. So I'm not necessarily the guy that walks around with hard hat. I'm the person that come up with the plans, the feasibilities, and so on. So early on in, in my career, that's what I was doing. And very soon, the, this area of, of thinking about projects on a grand scale across many disciplines started taking hold. And that's, that's how I got to... Um, be involved in, in this area and it's a very it's a very new and exciting area it's it's new in the world right the the world of capital investment planning at government level is underestimated it's it's something that needs a lot of thoughts a lot of thought leaders needs to become involved and it really will make a difference if we get it right thought leaders james your discipline Please, I'm a town planner, undergraduate, and postgraduate started dabbling in the engineering um, on the transport side of things. So to my engineering colleagues, I've regarded as a rehabilitated planner. <laughs> I consider my engineering colleagues as rehabilitated engineers, but nevertheless, <laughs> I think it's the combination of skills, and, and we'll talk about skills maybe later in sure. the podcast, but doing capital investment planning, whether it be in the private sector or in the public sector space, requires a very multidisciplinary team, and it's not just engineers and planners. There are others as well, but we'll probably get to that sure. later. Yeah. And I, I think I, I need to add, Pete, to what you asked. You asked the, the, the quantum of the money that gets involved with capital. But the other thing that's often overlooked, and I think especially from a political point of view, is the sheer number of projects sure. that you have to deal with. Like with the city of Joburg, you're dealing with in excess of 3,000 projects, all vying for capital. And the range of projects is from the traditional infrastructure type projects like roads and water and so on to to the Joburg Zoo and the Joburg Theatre, all competing for the same cake of money. So So that's including everything from your big... I guess your big spenders like the bus rapid transit extension, the, yeah. I mean, the, the, the corridors that Joburg have been investing in, the infrastructure that comes with it, as you say, right down to the, the meerkat enclosure at the zoo. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, so the, 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 there's two examples, yeah. the meerkat enclosure and then the bus rapid transit. What determines that priority and how do you balance the technical needs yeah. with the political? I mean, that's obviously a big challenge. Yeah. So. It's incredibly complex, this process. So, first of all, we, we need to, stay, uh, to, to take stock. There's eight metropolitan municipalities in South Africa, 39 so-called intermediate mm-hmm. cities, which is like candidate metros. That'd be like a Kimberley, yeah. uh, Stellenbosch, Polokwane, etc. Yeah, there we go. And then you've got 231 smaller municipalities. Now, municipalities are at the level of government, which is seen by many as the sort of crucible where iron gets melted. Okay, And once you've 
casted that iron and it cools down, uh, its adequacy or the lack of adequacy is very visible for everyone to see. So we better get it right when we when we uh, allocate priorities. So typically the considerations for expenditure starts at the strategic level. So it starts at national policies and directives such as the, the National Development Plan. And then at municipal level, there's the IDP process that harvests the needs of, uh, from the community. It includes sectoral plans, uh, you know, water master plans, roads master sure, plans, and sure. all of those the things. Transportation plans, etc. Yeah, it comes from there. And each municipality, municipality also has a, a host of spatial plans, like uh, SDFs and so on. And I'm sure we're going to dwell on that, but there's usually a wealth of information there. And then further considerations include economic impact, which is very important. We want to grow our economy. Financial impact, environmental impact the affordability of things and so on. The financial part is interesting because it's often overlooked as simply being an encumbrance instead of an enabler. Uh, The funding envelope, the affordability and other financial metrics are ever important considerations Mm -hmm. when you take into account uh, or to take into account when you think about the prioritization of capital. You have to do it. Okay, and it's important to note that prioritization is unique for each municipality. There's right. not one size fits all. That's very important Understood. to remember. Yeah, because each municipality is like a business of its own. It's got its own dynamics, its own strengths and weaknesses and so on that you have to take into account. Yeah, maybe to, to add on to what Bernard said, the process of prioritization is complex and the balancing act is complex. So the first thing to recognize is that you must have a multifaceted or multi-criteria approach to it. it. The second thing is recognizing that both technical and political priorities have to play a role in it. So for that purpose, the, the framework has to be transparent. It cannot be a black box approach. You must sure. be able to disassemble or dismantle the prioritization model down to its lowest level element and explain how each metric is calculated and each criteria is assessed. Because if you do not do that, there's mistrust in the model and hence the whole process falls apart. And finally, in that uh, construction of the model, what are we trying to do is we are trying to ground policy statements, plans, principles, ground them in reality. So we are trying to find ways to measure them. So there are three simple ways in which we typically measure in these prioritization models. That would be translating plans and policies into some form of a spatial area or a targeted area. Spatial arena of sorts. Exactly. So if you take an example of a a TOD principle, TOD station areas might be earmarked as targeted areas and you would measure projects that are targeting or hitting those areas. There are qualitative criteria where you would ask questions or you would maybe look for alignment with strategic outcomes, IDP outcomes or NDP outcomes, IUDF outcomes. And then lastly quantitative calculations. So Bernard referred to financial metrics. There we would be physically doing mathematical calculations around maybe an affordability line or affordability envelope and seeing whether projects are within or outside that envelope, for example. So it's those three metrics that we typically take into account. So so, I mean, if if I'm getting you right, James, I mean, on the one hand, you might be looking at leveraging investment for example as you said the TOD something like here in Hatfield and around the Gautrain station mm-hmm. how do you em- ensure that there's a follow-on from that public investment or might be about improving the livelihood of a community given it's come come from difficult uh, circumstances marginalized in its nature and you're trying to improve for example water and sanitation absolutely and I think you're touching on a point whether it be leveraging the investment or targeting a community it brings into an interest it brings an interesting dynamic in terms of the spatialization of your budget, understanding that the budget isn't only associated with the asset that you're investing in, 
but also the area that that asset is actually influencing or the people benefiting from that asset. So if you take an example of a, a water reservoir, the water reservoir might be located in a particular area, but the benefit of that reservoir is actually a completely different area based on drainage and the like. So it's important to take in even multifaceted or, or complex concepts around even locality comes into play in privatization. My apologies, James. I think it's a very important point you're making. I think it's often misunderstood, but let's just get this right. So you're talking about the location of the actual infrastructure might have a much broader impact than its actual location. Like you say, a wastewater treatment works located in one particular place, serving a much broader catchment area, much broader community than the surrounding immediate neighborhood. Absolutely. And, and that, uh, that concept is even taken further by National Treasury in their Municipal Standard Chart of Account, or MSCOA as it's mm-hmm. known. So the regional segment there is actually precisely trying to do that. They are trying to determine who is benefiting from that investment. So that is the, the, sort of the, the interpretation of National Treasury around this concept of benefit area versus the actual location of the asset where you're investing in. I mean, can you, can, can you, you've talked about the model, your model, uh, yeah. and the model that you've developed over a long period of time. In simplistic terms, can you maybe just talk about the stages associated with that prioritization and alignment? Clearly, a lot of thought's gone into how do you go about it. And, um, yeah. So what, 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 is the, what is the secret that you found in terms yeah. of a process? Peter, over time, we realized it's really a simple process that you should be able to explain in under two minutes. When you deal with large, complex organizations, the first thing you need is one place where all the data gets captured, right? So at an executive level, think of a CEO CEO of a a big company. You know, there's one, usually one source of information that that CEO would use. But in a, a municipal environment, it's a bit more complex than that. So... It's very important to create one place where project needs are captured. If it, whether it's just a wish or whether it's a very mature thing where a feasibility study is in place and, and lots of homework has been done, it needs to reside in one place. And it's important when those things reside. We talked about the meerkat enclosure and about the road and those things competing for the same sort of money. You have to create uniformity in how you capture data. So all projects want money. They have that in common. And all the projects you can locate somewhere in space. You can open a map on the table and say, my project is asking money over there. And it's an area that desperately needs this money. Or it's an area that can maybe stand over for a year or two. So the spatial aspect, and as James has mentioned, where where the benefit goes is really important. So there's a a temporal, there's a time-based aspect to it. There's a a needs-based, as in the imperative of it, in terms of urgent versus can be pushed out. So all the information that you want to enable you later to, to get some form of priority on these projects, you need to go late. And you need to keep it simple. You cannot go overboard. Because some of the projects are simply that. It's a meerkat enclosure. And don't expect uh, the head of the zoo to do a feasibility study on that. You know, it's simply not going to happen. But an engineer would be quite happy to do a feasibility study on a road. And I think that's that's where government, the, the world of local government gets really interesting. Sure. So you need to keep it at a certain level. Then you need to prioritize. Okay, so that's the second step. You need right. to prioritize in an unemotional way, an apolitical way. And fortunately in South Africa, our needs and our realities are really apolitical. Um, the poor stays the poor. You know, all of us are, are really wanting the same thing in South Africa. And that's for the country to move forward. So the things that you consider at local government level are, are very real needs, right? It's, it's where's the water going to come from, which I'm going to drink, 
Am I going to have proper sanitation at my house? Will I be having a house to live in? A roof over my head, uh, proper sanitation, proper services, and so on. So the prioritization takes, it needs to take into account all the rules that comes from National Treasury, financial rules. We need to think about the economy. We need to think about the environment and all of those things. And we prioritize and we come up with a list of priorities. And, and that list of priorities simply helps us. It creates perspective. It creates an anvil that you can hit with a hammer. Uh, so if you wor- have to work through 3,000 projects and you have to decide on those projects' priorities by means of debate, we will sit there for years on end and Understood. get nowhere. So that's why you need some form of a model to help you. Then the third step is to work with a finite budget. Right, we, we are not living in the Middle East where money is not an issue. Money is a big issue in of South course, Africa. So, so we have a finite budget and we have to fit our priorities within that budget. So, th- so the budget fitting exercise is actually quite an important one. So you have this cake of money which you're going to slice into little slices and each department um, asking for money will get a fair slice. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So the budgeting is the third step. And then the last step is you want to see accountability. You want to see the money get spent on what you decided to spend it on. So that sounds logic, uh, logical, but it's not always the case, right? You will find that you allocate money and the next year that same project is asking for the same money. So you're wondering where, the, where did the money go? It's not always corruption and all these things that we like to invoke and sensationalize, you know, these real realities that sometimes cause us not to be able to spend the money. But that closes the loop. So you need to have one sort of system that catches a project from its inception, from its wish, and it ushers it through all the way through maturity, prioritizing it, getting a budget, and then see to it that it gets implemented. That really is the essence of the process that you need to look after. And in that process, there's a whole lot of complexity, obviously, in each of those steps, and a whole lot of governance and, and legislation that comes into play. But that really is the essence of what, we, what we're doing. Again, to, to paraphrase, capture, yeah. capture the project, capture yeah. it in a single database, yeah. consider the d- different prioritization approaches, Look at the size of the cake or the budget fit that you yeah. have, and then appropriate and ultimately monitor and evaluate the yeah. spend yeah. against against what you said you're going to do. Correct? Absolutely. And I think an important point is for the listeners is to emphasize that there is a distinction between prioritization and budget scenario development. And the reason why we say that is because of the complexities around grant rules uh, and grant frameworks in South Africa. There are certain eligibility requirements around grants, and not all projects can actually eat from the same cake of Understood. money. So if you combine prioritization and budget scenario development into the same step, you lose that granularity of understanding eligibility rules. So prioritization is simply testing a project's alignment to your organizational strategy and your plans and getting a ranking from highest or best aligned to least aligned. And when you get to budget scenario development, you use prioritization as an input, but then you start looking at outcomes-based budgeting and saying, If I look at, let's be specific about grants, if I look at the Public Transport Operations Network grant, there are certain projects that qualify and others don't. So now suddenly you've got to make a determination of which projects ranked highest to lowest can eat from that grant and then you you fit them to that slice of the cake according to the prioritization. But it's not just a blanket approach, bottom line, fit projects. It doesn't work that way. So it's a much more complicated approach in the South African local government specifically. 
So, I mean, with complexity comes technology or vice versa. Technology can assist us with the complexity. And so, I mean, how has technology assisted in providing decision makers, the means, the platforms to support decision making? You, you, you right at the beginning, mm. uh, Bernard talked about evidence-based uh, pro- approaches. Mm. So technology, James, do you want to maybe kick off on your thoughts around how tech has really improved our ability to deal with this incredibly complex uh, issue you're putting on the table? Yeah, thanks, Pete. I think um, we started this journey back in 2004 already, and I think a lot of the principles that we're applying now were already conceptualized back then. The problem is that some of the technology wasn't in place to support us. We were doing some rudimentary calculations and spatial tests, but where we are now, we are in a much better position to actually effect on those. So maybe just to summarize a couple From a collaboration perspective, technology really these days in terms of cloud computing and apps that are available, collaboration is suddenly a very easy thing to achieve. So to get an organization to collaboratively contribute to the project database on a suitable platform with ease of use and speed of networks, that certainly makes life easier. Computing power has come a long way. Sifting through 3,000 projects, 3,500 projects, some of our models we can, we can work through that data set in under five minutes. Okay. And if you are doing scenario play, weighing up one set of weighting criteria against another, you can do that quickly by pushing a button. And it saves you a lot of money by playing with scenarios and using that computational power rather than committing to a strategy, having it published in the IDP, sure. and only realizing three years after that we've actually made a mistake here or there. It's a very expensive mistake to make. So computational power is very important. Sophistication, I've spoken about tools and techniques that are now available, specifically in the GIS environment, which has really come a long way, uh, making it easy for us to do calculation. Access to data and large data sets, complex data sets, looking for the nuances between them and the relationships between data sets has become easier. And then lastly, from a reporting perspective, just being able to to work around standardization. Um, I think a lot of In the municipal space, a lot of officials are bogged down by presenting the same information, reporting-wise, to different role players in government over and over, but the formats are slightly different, and you're simply just wrangling spreadsheets and wrangling documents. So by placing standardized reporting mechanisms out there, we can actually save a lot of time from an administrative perspective, and we can have planners do what they should be doing is plan, not just wrangling data and sending reports. Yeah. So it's it's a it's what well, to add to add directly onto what you were saying is uh, it's a resource multiplier. So using the the right sort of tools for the job is a resource multiplier. And I mean, when you go to war, uh, they have these big machines and tanks and so on. And they in in in, in a war scenario, they call that a, a resource multiplier. Instead of having twenty uh, soldiers, you have one big tank that can shoot. Sure. Uh, you know, and that's that's really uh, it's it's a it's a it's the same. When you use the appropriate tools to get to get across the line, um, the skills at local government level, you know, they are strained. They are really uh, struggling to get through all these compliance issues. And if there's something to le- uh, to lighten the load and make them focus on what they are good at, instead of uh, wrangling spreadsheets and struggling with electronics, I mean, then then you're doing the right thing. I mean, let's be clear here. I mean, I, I think what what's important to to understand is that. Whether we're looking at 2004, there were still 3,000 projects. Yeah. And here we are in 2019. There's still 3,000 projects. Yeah. The difference that I think you're describing, James, particularly is around the ability to interpret and analyze those 3,000 through a whole series of filters in minutes as opposed to evenings. 
Yeah, absolutely. What are these skill sets? How do you win over um, the, the, the champions in both the political mm. and those technical spaces or ultimately the decision makers who are going to approve the budget, the projects, etc.? We, we recently had somebody that assisted our company from a human resource perspective to understand multi-generational aspirations. How we differ generation by generation, you know, the baby boomers and so on. Sure. Uh, how they are different through each generation. And I think in the in the new way we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, we talk about big data, all those fancy things. And what also changes along with it is the traditional way of approaching problems. Traditionally, we've got big engineering firms, we've got big planning firms, we've got accounting firms. And to really tackle this kind of problem, capital investment, just working through all the dynamics of it and realizing it's not just a one-dimensional problem, you need multiple skills. So, So you need economists, you definitely need them. You need accountants because you work with money. But you also need engineers, you need planners, you need data analysts, you need IT people, you need people who understand the urban environment. So a multi-skilled approach to this problem is really, really essential to do it well. Just to add on to that, you need environmental practitioners. There's an increasing focus on uh, environmental mainstreaming Hmm. and making sure that it's reflective in your budget. Uh, The list is probably endless in terms of built environment practitioners that we can bring in here. But I think just to highlight environmental practitioners is becoming increasingly important. The climate change agenda is now brought in incre- increasingly in all of our clients that we work with. It's it's drifting to the top of the agenda. That and I guess the whole question of resilience and how that is is, is being understood and factored into decision making. Absolutely, and and it and it forces the pre- well officials and us alike to start thinking about resilience in our context. Right, South Africa is not on an island that's going to be inundated by the sea, but we have different problems. We have floodlines. We have extremely dry periods we have hot summers we have cold winters and that sort of thing is the, those are the things that we need to consider we've talked about skills but i guess the other the other side of the coin two-sided coin is that you've got experience and you've been at this now for as you say about 15 years or so so perhaps some thoughts or lessons learned in your lengthy experience on this process this journey that you've taken thanks pete um so a couple of points from my side uh, leadership I think we've spoken about it in earlier earlier part of the conversation, making sure that there's an institutional champion. Our experience, it, uh, it works best if it is, is led from the front. So typically your municipal manager must or city manager must buy into the process and lead the organization in terms of a change management process. Communication and consultative forums. I mean, we all have a lot of meetings to attend. We don't want to inject more forums and meetings into this environment but we found that structuring your budget and your integrated planning and spatial targeted approaches around a discussion forum like a BEP steering committee or a capital planning forum or something to that effect really brings the organization together and we start breaking through those barriers of stovepipe planning and stovepipe implementation so integration comes into play Uh, institutionalizing the process so make sure that the entire organization participates not only the engineering or the big utility agencies of the municipality it's a combination of built environment practitioners that have to take part in the process access to data obviously we can't go on about data if you don't have data you can't really do justice to your analyses your impact analysis prioritization and models and toolkits again we've spoken about prioritization you cannot sift through three thousand 
projects in a in a debate fashion. So you need to have tools and models to your to your disposal. I think the last one that stood out for me recently was reading the market for policy indicators. Uh, there's been a couple of shockwaves that have hit the budgeting processes in municipalities. Uh, we've mentioned MSCOA. That was a massive shockwave that hit the, the industry. Uh, IDMS, sorry for the, in, the uh, acronyms, uh, Integrated Delivery, Delivery Management, Capital Expenditure Frameworks, those type of things. I think the lesson there is read the indicators, look to your policy leaders, if you want to call it that, National Treasury, COPTA, uh, DLR, look at what they are talking about and see if you can onboard those into your budget process early and pilot those. Because if you don't pilot them early, the institutional shock doing it reactively is is very damaging. I'm I'm going to take a bit of a different approach to answering your question about lengthy our lengthy experience in in, in this process. Um, we we've got the the benefit of of two decades now almost and seeing a lot of things change in that time politically, technically, and so on. So South Africa is highly politicized right and but what we realized is all people want the same thing harmony equality human dignity prosperity we all want that irrespective of political credence we really all want that when the importance and the complexity of capital investment is understood that's when the magic actually happens we've seen it we've seen it with our own eyes it's like the aha moment you know oh okay now i see how it works and i can see how it can work for me and I can see how it can work for the people living in my local government sphere, okay, in my city. We have a couple of exciting maps that shows how the expenditure of capital has started to transform cities, okay, mm-hmm. to reflect the goals and objectives that were determined to achieve these changes. So, you know, there's a decision that take, gets taken, for instance, uh, on a public transport corridor. And over time, you can actually see the densification of, you can see the fruits of that decision. We're sitting in such a precinct right here mm-hmm. in Hatfield. 20 years ago, all these buildings around us weren't there. Sure. They, they, they simply, the density wasn't there. When local government can show a process that has good governance and financial prudence built into the mix, private funding and donor funding can be accessed more readily. And I think that's a big gap that we're leaving at local government level. Uh, what concerns me is the low level of public-private partnerships mm-hmm. that we're seeing at local government level. Many places, uh, PPPs, are still viewed as a foreign concept. And this is a pity because there are many, many rands seeking to find a place to make a lasting difference in our country. And issues of trust and governance are important in this context. There's that word trust again. Not the first yeah. time we, you, you yeah. use it. I think it's about that whole yeah. question of how do you trust? And I mean, the whole podcast has been designed not only around the professionals, but around advocacy people and groups with agency who are arguing that things need to fa- change quicker, faster. So how do you bring in the voice of, of the public and the communities into this process? I mean, you could argue mm. a very uh, bland technical response, well, it's an IDP, so therefore... Yeah. It, let, let, let's think a bit harder than that. And I mean, yeah. how, how do you start to bring in those other voices uh, in the public community that can start to influence this? Any thoughts? Out of all the questions you've asked, Pete, this is the, this is the real... The, the cruncher, yeah. Yeah. as you said, the, the easy answer is to fall back on the IDP community process. 
maybe maybe James to just answer that because you said we shouldn't say anything about it, but let me say something about the IDP what we found the IDP when you ask communities about their needs it's usually things that can be fixed with op- OPEX not capital Understood. okay so it's Understood. please mend my fence please fix the pothole help me with the security of, of my area it's seldom that you will get a person living on the periphery of a city like Tuani that will ask you for a multi-level highway across the inner city, Understood. right? Yeah, that sure, never sure. comes from the community. And, and, and to change a city, that's often what you need. Asking, expecting those sort of things to come from the community, uh, you know, is unreasonable in our view. So that, that, as far as the IDP is concerned, it's got its use, but it's also got its limitations. Just adding on to what Bernard said, so not falling into the, the standard IDP community engagement process, I still think there is... A lot of value to be gained from the community-based planning approach where if we have spatialized our budget and our capital demand needs the community can much easier engage with that at a community-based planning level i think it's not just a question about talking to them about their needs and sort of putting together this nebulous wish list of what they want uh, as bernard said that's mostly opex driven it's showing them what is being planned for the community that what is in the on the backlog list and then starting to engage them in terms of placemaking in their own spaces and getting their involvement. I have to refer to some experience that we gained in Johannesburg working on the Corridors of Freedom project. The community-based involvement there in some instances became very real where community members and some of the uh, academia that were in specific precincts touched by the Corridors of Freedom project were sitting around maps with pens thinking up schemes and if you, if you suddenly start injecting the capital budget that's spatialized into that mix and explaining how you are unlocking bulk infrastructure for development and densification here or there's improvements to a park or a particular uh, road or sidewalks or whatever the case might be, it makes the community-based planning initiative a much more real effort, if I can put it that way. A, a message for the, for the younger folk out there who are trying to understand and make their way in this whole question of built environment, professional, financial space, trying to represent their community groups in a particular way. What's your message to, to, to those people who maybe at the moment are struggling because, you know, we know the economy is in a real, really not a good space right now. We know that we are facing major challenges. Mm. From your experience, the benefit of the hindsight, the benefit of building up something, mm. uh, maybe a message for, for that next generation who are going to come and ultimately take take on your, you know, the, your mantle and, and take this to its next generation and next level of, of approach. We must remember that every calamity brings with it an opportunity. So South Africa, you know, we, we, we love to you know, complain a lot and say a lot of negative things. But with those things, we must realize we as South Africans are a unique breed. We've learned to face these things head on. I'm going to quote somebody from the World Bank, who will remain unnamed, that told me, Whenever South Africa needs advice, we bring in foreigners. But whenever foreigners need advice, they bring in South Africans. Because we've faced it all. So to be in the built environment, and particularly in this challenging built environment, is a great plus. The rest of the world wants to hear what we are doing. They want to learn from us. James, uh, myself, and our other colleague, Yaku de Vries, uh, have been flown by the World Bank twice to Indonesia already to host a workshop there on this capital investment planning. 
they are really interested. Sure. Um, they find what we're doing very, very informative. South Africa has got a lot to offer in this space. Don't just see the negative, but actually see the silver lining. There's quite a big civil, a silver lining. James, the future, what does it hold? New geographies. As Bernard said, the international community likes to listen to South Africans. So let's see if we can... Uh, take what we're doing to other geographies, take it to other markets. I think it's not just a public sector thing. It's not just a, a municipality capital investment. This could be transposed to other other sectors and to other geographies. And then I think lastly, just continually pushing the boundaries of new methods and new technologies. Uh, or new technologies are, are, are coming up daily and um, every year new things are coming up. So looking for new techniques that we can just keep improving on this process. Keep on innovating. Well, innovating, I think you certainly have done and you've done it over and over again and it's led you to this point and I really do want to wish you the very best to the both of you and to the rest of your team here at Hatfield. Many thanks for making the time to come and talk to, to me and to the listeners and hopefully there's lessons to be learned uh, out there. How do they get hold of you? If, if somebody wants to get hold of you, is there a website? Yeah, we've got a website, Novus3, N-O-V-U-S, three.co.za that's our website and on there you'll get all our contact details fantastic bernard james many thanks all the very best good luck we'll maybe check in in a year's time find out how you're keeping uh, assuming you're not traveling all over the world with the world bank all the <laughs> thank best. you thank you very much Pete. thank you we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.